Hello, welcome to Dust Disease Diaries, real lives, real stories of asbestos and beyond. This podcast created by the Asbestos and Dust Diseases Research Institute, and it's about asbestos diseases, dust diseases, how they're treated, how people deal with them. Today, we're talking about silicosis, and we're joined by Kate Cole, an engineer and scientist who works with organisations to help them prevent illness and death in high-risk workplaces. Kate has done a lot of work on reducing the risk of workers getting silicosis, been awarded uh, an Order of Australia medal for her service to workplace health and safety, and named one of the top 100 women of influence by the Australian Financial Review and one of Science and Technology Australia's superstars of STEM. Uh, Hi, Kate. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Why have you focused so much of your uh, life and career on health and safety? Um, I think it's because of the industries that I work in. I started out my career as an engineer and it was absolutely wonderful. But then my focus really moved from focusing on what we were building and the impact on the environment to the people that were building it. Because construction is a high-risk sector Mm. and the thing that really I was interested in was the exposures to construction workers to hazardous substances and most specifically the toxic dusts that they can be exposed to in their in their working life. So I, I eventually changed careers and now I work primarily as an occupational hygienist. So what is an occupational hygienist? An occupational hygienist is the science behind workplace health and safety. So we focus solely on the prevention of work-related illnesses and diseases. We will measure all sorts of toxic substances, whether that's asbestos or silica or hazardous gases. It might be noise, radiation, um, but really anything that can cause illness and disease, we are the scientists that know how to assess the risk, how to measure it, but most importantly, how to protect workers from it. Okay. Should have a, a better name, shouldn't it? Hygiene. I mean, you know, I'm sort of about dental or something, you know? Uh, it could have a better name, but I've got to say that in high-risk industries, people know who we are because well, it's good. pretty critical for us to be there to make sure that everything can continue. Now, so silicosis is featured a lot in the media in the last few months, especially engineered stone and, and moves toward a ban of it. But it's not a new disease. Can you tell us a bit about the history of silicosis in Australia? Well, unfortunately, Australian workers have been dying from silica-related diseases and specifically silicosis since the late 1800s. You know, the earliest source of silica dust in Australia would have to be sandstone. And, you know, due to colonisation and increased population density in Sydney, specifically, there was a need to start to build services like underground sewerage and underground water supplies. And those services were built by workers that were termed sewer miners. And unfortunately, they kept dying Mm. relatively quickly And they kept dying from what they termed sewer miners' disease, which we now know was actually silicosis because they were chopping into sandstone, they were creating this really fine silica dust and they were breathing it in. So this has been an issue in Australia for a very long time, but it's not until that time, I think now, that we have seen such a high prevalence or a high rate of silica-related disease that we do in engineering stone. There's more construction. Um, look, the, the, there's only one industry in Australia where we see a prevalence of one in every four workers with a silica-related disease, oh, wow. and that is engineered stone. Yeah. So engineered stone, unfortunately, takes the brunt 
uh, around 80% of all our accepted workers' compensation cases. Really, engineered stone is is the br- facing the brunt of this. But so it's let's not go the only right industry. back to first principles. What is engineered stone? Well, engineered stone is a man-made product mm. that consists of crystalline silica, resin, pigments, and essentially uh, the non-scientific term, I guess, is a, a conglomerate mush that's heated up to yeah. a high temperature. Yeah. Uh, but you bring all those things together in its solid form, it's fine. But the minute you put a power tool to it, you're generating a dust that has uh, crystalline silica in it in addition to a whole bunch of other toxic substances. And exposure to this dust we know uh, causes a very high prevalence or high rate of silicosis and other diseases. What, what is the range of types of dust, I guess, that can cause silicosis? Well, silicosis is only caused by exposure to respirable crystalline silica or what mm. we call silica dust. That's the only cause. But where can you where can you be exposed? And well, some of the high risk industries would be uh, apart from engineered stone um, would be construction, and the sources can be sandstone or it can be concrete or grout. For example, could be demolition where you're demolishing concrete, could be mining where the silica is contained in quartz in the underground ore being mined, might be quarrying. So there's quite a large range of industries where silica can be a risk. Yeah, yeah. And and I think you mentioned the issue around engineered stone has come up now primarily because of the volume of people because of the prevalence of engineered stone being used. Yes, absolutely. As I said, it's the only industry where we have such a high prevalence uh, of, of silicosis. And until we really get on top of that, um, really we can't solve the, the silicosis crisis in Australia. Is tunnelling a big source of, of, of risk? Yes, absolutely. So I work in tunnel construction. It's an industry that I absolutely adore. Um, Exposures to silica come from the host rock being tunnelled and also from grout and concrete and other substances that are used. So after we successfully ban the importation and use of engineered stone in our country, our next focus must be on the tunnel construction sector because there are some great practices in tunnelling and there are some great employers and great projects, but unfortunately it's not consistent and there are um, still areas where silica um, and silica-related diseases present a significant risk to these workers. Give me an example of great practice in tunnelling. Uh, great practice in tunnelling is uh, sort of designing engineering controls before the tunnel's even constructed. So allowing for enough space for temporary tunnel ventilation in all areas mm. where workers need to work, really sophisticated dust suppression systems, enclosed cabins with pressurised filters or high efficiency, efficiency particulate air or HEPA filters, um, you know, putting all that together with health surveillance, air monitoring, and then high-grade respiratory protection, that's a great start. Mm. But we by, by which you mean masks? Uh, high-grade respiratory protection really is powered air purifying respirators, so sort of hoods, right, right. not your disposable sort of P2 dust mask right, type right. of scenario, which, that. yeah, which, you know, may be fine for some <clears throat> lower um, areas of, of risk, but generally um, not okay for the majority of circumstances. What does silicosis do to someone? How does it affect them? Well, when you breathe in respirable crystalline silica, it causes inflammation of the lungs and that can lead to scarring and then that can lead to uh, breathlessness and it becomes difficult to breathe. 
there's many different types of silicosis, but uh, it can be progressive and unfortunately it, it can take your life from mm. you. Uh, but it's not just silicosis that silica dust causes. There's a range of other diseases. And the one I think that's so surprising to people is that it's a known human carcinogen. It causes lung cancer. It, it also causes rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. The list is quite long. So it's a really insidious uh, toxic dust. And uh, even though the, the prevalence of silicosis is, is quite high, uh, I think we fear that, in fact, the burden of disease is much greater mm. because not everyone has associated maybe the lung cancer or the, the COPD with their past exposures to crystalline silica. So you mentioned tunnelling. What are the other high-risk workplaces? Uh, it would be things like mining and quarrying, uh, demolition, uh, construction in general uh, would be some of the top. But then you also find concrete and grout and uh, you know, general substances that contain crystalline silica in most workplaces. Uh, you know, you may be doing art and craft and you're working with pottery right. and you're working with clay and that has crystalline silica in it. So it's, it's quite ubiquitous, but the risk uh, of you know, developing silica-related diseases isn't always the same in these workplaces. Sometimes uh, it's going to be a lot higher and that's where we're using or things are being used that have a very high concentration of crystalline silica in them and they're creating a lot of dust and that perfect storm is known as engineered stone. Really high concentrations of silica and creating a lot of dust and that's why I think we have the problems that we have. So in terms of safety, uh, safety practices by employers, would I be right in thinking that those big infrastructure projects like uh, like tunnels, often with government money, big projects, pretty visible, are they more likely to have good safety practices than smaller scale operations? Uh, you would hope, but unfortunately that's not always the case. You know, Safe Work New South Wales shared in Parliament last year that 21 workers were diagnosed with silicosis from tunnelling work in New South Wales from the past five years. And they're major infrastructure projects that are funded by our government. So unfortunately, no, that's mm. not always the case. You know, this is underground. Air monitoring data doesn't go anywhere, doesn't get reported anywhere. Um, there's not always the safety practices that we would expect. Yeah. But like I said, there are some good players in this industry and there are some good projects, but um, you can't just assume because it's a government-funded project that it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. So is there a role, well, ha, given the, the upsurge in awareness about silicosis, is there a corresponding upsurge in good safety practices? And, and if not, should there be more regulation by governments? So we have definitely seen some improvements and we've seen some improvements in some really basic things that have been in our regulation for a really long time. So basic things I'm talking about is fit testing of respiratory protection or being clean shaven when wearing a mask. You know, these are basic things that have been in our regulation for some time mm. that we just start to see in the past five years. So that I guess that's good, uh, but we still have a long way to go. You know, we have a code of practice for demolition that doesn't even talk about silica. We don't have an up-to-date code to practice for, for tunnelling that deals with silica. We have a real dearth at the moment of a need for regulation and then I guess more importantly than that, actually resources that can appropriately educate and enforce uh, the regulation where needed um, across the state. So often people who get silicosis are reasonably young, usually male, maybe supporting a family, 
maybe concerned about loss of income. Uh, if someone is listening has been working in a place that they think may be at risk, what should they do? Well, if they're currently working in a high-risk environment, then they should know that the employer is obligated to provide health monitoring for crystalline silica under the Work Health and Safety Regulation. So that should be happening every single year. Um, if So if that's not happening, I encourage them to speak to their employer. I also encourage them to reach out to their medical professional or their GP Go through their occupational history. Tell them where they've been working mm. and the types of things they're working with uh, because lung screening is incredibly important. If they're concerned, and it's natural to, to feel concerned about, well, what, what next um, if there is a diagnosis? There are some great supports available, uh, organisations like the Lung Foundation of Australia. Uh, it might be uh, your union. It might be, be that you have to reach out to or you should reach out to legal representation to better understand what avenues are available to you because there are a lot. And I guess that's one really unfortunate thing about this disease is that once diagnosed and the disease has progressed, generally there's a recommendation for that worker to no longer work in a high risk or you know a workplace where they are at risk of silica exposure. And we're talking about people that have dedicated their whole lives to an industry and now they can't work there. So it's incredibly devastating because you know in some cases that's their friends, that's their family, that's their whole life. So mm. not only have they been given this death sentence, but they've also had their whole livelihood and their community taken away. But the earlier you get on it, the better its outcome uh, is likely to be. Are you aware of the average lifespan once diagnosed with silicosis? No, I think it really varies. Um, and I would defer that to uh, one of the respiratory physicians. Um, that's it's Particularly, there's been some great screening programs that have been happening uh, down in Victoria. So I couldn't comment on the, yeah. the lifespan. Okay. Um, so if you're in charge, would you ban engineered stone? I'm guessing. There is absolutely no question. Until we yeah. ban engineered stone in Australia, it's, we're really just playing lip service to silicosis prevention. Absolutely yeah. must be banned. What else would you do? Uh, then we need national consistent regulation, um, particularly in our high-risk sectors. I'm talking construction and tunnelling. We definitely need uh, more resources in our health and safety regulators to focus specifically on the prevention of work-related disease. You know, the National Dust Disease Task Force uh, recommended the, the need for a national silicosis prevention strategy and national action plan, and I was honoured to co-chair the development of that over the past year, and that's sitting with our, um, with our government at the moment. So that really needs to be released, funding needs to be assigned to it, and it needs to be implemented. And if we can do all of that, then we are in a much better place than we are now. Yep, yep. Because there is a balance, isn't there? I mean, there's such a difference between banning engineered stone, but do you want to ban tunnels? You know, that's a much bigger and different thing, isn't it? Because the, the, the source of danger is actually part of the earth, isn't it? Yeah, and that's actually a really common thing that engineered stone companies will use as a reason not to ban their product. They'll oh, say, oh, right. but see, there's silica over mm -hmm. there, so we can't ban that, we can't ban our, our product, which is a futile argument because you can absolutely ban a, a manufactured product that's imported into our country that's a luxury item. But when it comes to, you know, tunnelling, there are some really practical ways to reduce exposures and protect tunnel mm. workers, absolutely. And we're talking about two different industries. Tunnelling is, you know, those, those contractors are uh, multi-million dollar contractors yeah. servicing those projects. Engineered Stone, what, six to 12 workers per shop? We're talking a small business mm. enterprise. So 
completely different industry. Yeah, yeah. Now, you sometimes get called as an expert witness. What do, you, what do you give evidence about in what sort of matters? Um, so, un- unfortunately, there are a lot of cases of silicosis of workers that have worked in high-risk industries like tunnelling and construction and engineered stone, for example, and those workers are claiming, um, mm. you know, from from their employers and I'm asked a series of questions and I'm given statutory declarations of workers and as I'm reading those statutory de- declarations which tell me what the worker is saying, which is essentially these are the workplace conditions at the time and this is what was or was not in place to protect me, it's really frustrating because as a hygienist I know exactly what could have been put in place yeah. to protect them. And are these, re- you know, is, is there much of a lag? You know, like we, with asbestos yes. is often a 40, 50-year lag. Yeah, so the latency period of um, silica and silica-related disease does vary. In engineered stone, it can be quite short, a mm-hmm. matter of, you know, a few years or so. And in tunnelling, in my experience, it can be uh, around uh, 10 to 20 years. Right. So in some cases, it, it some time has passed, but... The requirements of employers to create, have safe workplaces and a lot of the same things we have in our legislation now still existed back then. Um, and the technology we have now, a lot of it still existed back then. So, uh, And I was working mm. back then. I know it was what was available. So it is heartbreaking that we still have these, these situations of, of workers who have quite progressive disease and are actually not that much older than me and in many cases in stone a lot younger than I. We've heard in other episodes uh, from lawyers talking about asbestos how a couple of the pioneering lawyers how difficult it was to run cases in the you know the 1980s and how progressively the system became more streamlined and now it can be very quick Um, particularly when someone is is dying and and uh, you know, a very high percentage of matters are settled quite quickly. Are we kind of with silicosis back where we were with asbestos in the 80s in terms of the legal system or are, is the system improving? Uh, I think that's a great question for a lawyer. As an expert witness looking in, yeah. um, I can see that there's some incredible improvements that need to be made. I don't mm. think it's quick from where I'm standing at all. I think it can be incredibly convoluted, particularly because in the case of construction and tunnelling, these workers go across different states and territories mm. of Australia. So this is not just one employer at one point in time. So yes, it can be very challenging, but I guess, you know, that's the benefit of having good legal representation to navigate you through that. And I'm sure that lawyers would say that there needs to be improvements to the system because, you know, workers are dying yeah. and they're not able to be at work. They're not able to work. And they're dying from completely preventable diseases that sh- they shouldn't have to start with. So there are obviously many parallels between this and asbestos, aren't there? Um, it, have you? It, do you see much evidence that we've learnt the lessons of slow responses to as- asbestos with silicosis? Not at all. Um, you know, it, it, it's incredibly. It's, it's, sorry, it's, it's quite sad, but. If we think back to 2005, we had in Australia a Senate inquiry into toxic dust and that Senate inquiry made a whole slew of recommendations and they were not acted upon. And now we're in a situation with one in four engineered stone workers with silica-related disease, mainly silicosis, and you look at the recommendations from the National Dust Disease Task Force and they're the same. So that is abhorrent that we have these inquiries, we have these recommendations, and we have a situation where government can say, 
oh, look, I see that recommendation and I just note it. I'm not going to do anything with it. And now we're in the situation we're in with the same recommendation. So until we take really proactive steps to um, change the way that we look at occupational lung disease, so we resource it, we give it money, we give it people, we have a national action plan, we ban engineered stone, we're actually not taking it seriously because there will be another type of engineered stone. There will be something else that comes. And uh, I'm really working hard, like many other people in in this sector, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. So do you see much evidence that there is, I mean, it feels like as an outsider, there's a fair bit of momentum at the moment to um, to get more awareness and to do specific things. Do you think that will result in, in specific actions over the next few months? Well, there's been a lot of announcements. Yeah. There's been a lot of talk, which is great because that raises awareness. But until there's a ban on engineered stone, then it's just talk. Mm. And it's just media releases or newspaper articles. And media releases and newspaper articles don't stop people dying. No. So there's still a lot more that needs to be done. Are you optimistic there will be a ban in the next 12 months? Uh, We're in November 2023. I am a perpetual optimist. Mm. So yes, but I'm also trying to not be naive and assume Mm. that it's a done deal because the industry lobbying on this is, is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this must be quite distressing work for you at times. How do you deal with all that? Um, look, I think being an occupational hygienist is both a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. It's a blessing if we can get into workplaces early enough to make a positive difference. So I'm talking about having engineering controls and systems in place so we're not relying on masks and these lower level things. Um, and we can actually see that workers are not going to be diagnosed with a disease because we can see the results in the air and it's very, very low. So that's really positive. The The curse is really when, you know, I'm reading statutory declarations of what actually happened in a workplace and I know full well what could have been there. That's really a curse. But I guess for me, I channel that frustration and I guess some some of that sadness into action. So yeah. I've recently at my age started a PhD into looking at uh, respirable crystalline silica exposures to tunnel workers. And I put all of my spare energy and effort into that because I really want to understand what policy aspects have been successful and which ones have really inhibited, you know, and, and got us to where we are today, which is unfortunately quite a lot of silica-related disease in that cohort. So I'm trying to channel that energy into something good so that we can have a positive, uh, I guess, future in this space. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the ban on engineered Stone is a is, is a huge thing, but just specifically, what else would you like to see change in the next year or two? Uh, well, we, we need re- new regulation. We need the National Action Plan to be dropped, um, to be resourced and um, to be promoted and implemented across every state and territory in Australia. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we also need better, I guess, national governance of this issue. Australia does not have a Centre for Disease Control or a CDC-style um, type of government agency. We have had the National Occupational Health and Safety Commission, the Australian Safety and Compensation Council and now Safe Work Australia. And as you go through time, you see that in each one of those bodies, the focus on occupational illness and disease drops. Mm. 
as time goes on. Um, maybe with the exception of asbestos in certain areas, but particularly silica, the focus just drops. So we need to bring that focus back up. And how we do that is with funding, with people, uh, with a strategy and a plan. Thank you so much for coming in, Kate. Thanks for having me. Uh, Kate Cole has been our guest. Thanks to producer Rod Mori at Sydney Podcast Studios. If you want more information, please go to the uh, website of the Asbestos and Dust Diseases Research Institute, ADRI for short, and there's lots more episodes of this podcast. Podcast.